Sir Balp and Tiva DeBrass from Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron uh, provides more information about the Fangraphs Lives event. No, the Fangraphs Live event. It's a Fangraphs Live event that takes place in Washington, D.C., July 5th. He provides more details for that. With regard to baseball analysis, one can find here in what follows Dave Cameron discussing the draft. And apropos the draft, uh, some strange facts regarding Major League Second Baseman. Not very strange, but somewhat strange. Uh, also, the Mark Trumbo trade. Mark Trumbo was traded, of course, by Arizona to Seattle. Uh, discussed not only the trade itself, but the inevitability of it. The inevitability of the trade that sent Mark Trumbo to Seattle because Jack Zarenchik, uh, Seattle's uh, general manager, had long uh, wanted something like that to occur. Uh, let's see. Uh, also, Dave Cameron makes a, uh, a startling discovery during this week's edition of the podcast. Yeah, they seem to be uh, female. And one final note, uh, one final note. Uh, listeners will know that Dave Cameron recently bought a microphone. Um, it's possible that he had previously hooked up that microphone incorrectly, but now you will hear Dave Cameron's voice like you've never heard it before, which I will concede is not necessarily a good thing, but it is a fact. It is a fact. What else is a fact is that this is uh, Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Or Thursday night, or something, and then the second one was Sunday, and then there's like another one Tuesday or Wednesday, or I mean, there's like two or three days bef- between every game. Yeah, that, that is that is uh, unusual. <laughs> Which is funny because I think in during the regular season, like they have back to backs all the time, and like one of the big problems, right, is there's too many back to backs, and sometimes they'll have four nights, four games, and five nights, and you know, so it's not that common in the NBA for them to have like, yeah, let's play six games in three weeks. And meanwhile, there's discussion in Major League Baseball. Well, the problem with baseball right, is that there's games every day, and there should. Well, I don't know if that's a problem, but it's a fact it's about a fact. baseball. Probably the players don't like it. Well, the players would like to play fewer games. Yeah, but not that many. I mean, you know, they don't want to play the, the NBA final schedule. Do the, do the coaches want there to be fewer games as well? Uh, probably. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think if there was a way for baseball to sustain their current revenues and everyone work less, I think that, you know, I would sign up for that. Like, you know, I would like to work fewer days for the same pay. I I don't know anyone who doesn't want to do that. Yeah, people who, uh, people who don't know how to use their leisure time is how, is who. Yeah. There are people like that. There are. I'm married to one, actually. Oh, is that right? Yeah, well, there are people who, if you gave them that day off, they would get, they would, there would be major league baseball players who would get a side job. Yeah, this is a, it's true. Yeah, uh, it's, I, I have a few people in my life who really aren't good at relaxing, and so when you give them free time, they just find work to do. Work to do, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I know someone like that too. I'm I'm married to her as well. Yeah, they seem to be uh, female. Yeah, there might be, might be. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, this is so exciting. This yeah. is so 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 exciting. Uh, listen, before we get into it, very. Much. Let's. Uh, will you please tell me more and other people more about uh, f- an event, an event in Washington D.C. July Fourth. It looks like no, no July fifth. July fifth. July fourth. The event in Washington D.C. will be fireworks and 
in beer, probably. Right. So uh, beer, we're, we're, beer not, we're not we're not sponsoring that one. That one's brought to you by the United States of America. Yeah. Uh, we're doing one on July 5th, the next day, uh, at a place called Regional Food and Drink, which is a bar, uh, and it is uh, kind of a Fangraphs gathering slash meetup slash Q and A thing. Uh, so we've reserved the private room at RFD for three hours from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. on Sunday, July 5th. Uh, and we're going to hang out and talk baseball, and many of you will drink. Yeah, that's great. It sounds great. Yeah, it should be fun. I think uh, the, the we're going to basically do like two different panel discussions, but they're not going to be you – know, they'll be pretty informal probably where we'll just take a lot of questions from the audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one's going to be Dan Brooks of Brooks Baseball uh, and Mike Farron of Sirius XM – uh, and myself, and we'll just talk, you know, general baseball and uh, pitch classifications and, you know, uh, radio and hey, whatever else we get. people want to ask the three of us. Mm-hmm. And then uh, three members of the Washington Nationals front office are going to come hang out and answer questions about the Washington Nationals. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Washington Nationals, very successful baseball team right now. Well, they're moderately successful. I think they're like 30 and 27, right? So like less successful than people might have thought. How about a very talented team? There Is you that go. Fair? They Is are extremely, fair? they have a lot of injured players. They missed Brendon for the first part of the year and Worth's hurt. And yeah, I mean, this is, you know, it's a good team that has not yet been healthy. Okay. All right. Uh, good. I'm glad we reached that distinction. It sounds like a great event. What is it? What does the ticket cost? Oh, $10. $10. And that includes a $5 voucher for a, well, a voucher for a free beer, which I'm assuming costs about $5. Oh, I don't drink, so I don't know, but I think beers cost like five bucks these days. Well, places. especially in Washington DC. I mean, it's, yeah, right. Uh, it might be a seven or eight dollar beer. Who knows? Be uh, so right. So you get a free beer. Uh, well, you get a prepaid beer. That's probably more, <laughs> more that's realistic. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the event costs you $10 and you get a drink. Um, we actually have almost sold out. We uh, There's a, 100 tickets that we have made available because the room can only hold so many people. And I think we sold 80 of them already in one day, uh, or at least in one announcement. So uh, 99% chance this thing's going to sell out. I would say if you want to go and you haven't brought your ticket yet, do so now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's uh, all All that sounds great. Sounds great. And that's, uh, that's also the hometown or at least the uh, where it is where David Appleman currently resides, or just in the yep. outskirts of it. Yeah. David Appleman will be there along with myself, mm-hmm. uh, representing Fangraphs. So we might sneak a few other people in there, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's mostly going to just be a hangout time with some baseball mixed in. Those are fun, I will say. For this reason, is that you were with a group of people, um, you know that you all, uh, you're everyone is aware that you have um, a sort of um, a high working knowledge of the game, in particular the quantitative aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, there's a few people who I've already seen buy tickets. I guess I'm going to expose them, uh, even if they wanted to be private. But I saw their names on the list. But like uh, Kent Bottom, who runs College Splits and mm-hmm. has uh, provided a lot of really good, useful college information, is going to be there because because he bought a ticket. At least he bought a ticket. I don't know if he's going to be there, but he Maybe, paid us ten dollars. Yeah. Uh, and Michael Shader, who's uh, presented at the last couple Saber seminars and is an extremely smart baseball researcher, uh, is going to be there. And so you're right. We're, we're going to be the dumbest guys in the room, which is always nice. Yeah. I will say that uh, shortly before that event, uh, the actual uh, the Saber, the annual Saber uh, conference will be taking place in Chicago, Illinois. It will be. Yeah. I think they, they've recently been having that around the trade deadline or like on the trade deadline, and I was glad to see they moved that this year. Yeah, it's a little bit earlier. Yeah. yeah. And, good uh, call. Well, I will be there. I don't know if you're going to be there. I'm going to be there. I, I will not be at that one, unfortunately. Yeah. I'm going to be sharing a bed with David Temple. Hmm. Yeah. I, I Jealous? Think, no. 
Not at all. <laughs> Are you going to be sharing, like, a room or an actual bed? I'm going to be sharing a room with three men. Oh. Yeah. We're going to be uh, splitting up into beds because uh, some combination of cheap and uh, – nope, just cheap, I guess, actually. Is yeah, that's the combination. Uh, yeah. one, one part cheap, no parts anything no part else. No parts anything else. Uh, you mentioned uh, Bonham and his, uh, college, his college data. Entirely relevant today, Dave Cameron, because yeah. it is yeah. a draft day. Good segue. Yes. Although the odds that you get this up on draft day seem to be slimming. No, 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 no. This is going to be the a last few podcasts have gone up like you know a couple days late. Well, you know, Dave Cameron, that I have assumed a slightly different role within Fangraphs recently. <laughs> We're actually making you do work. Yeah, I know. I've noticed that. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's actually uh, uh, so I've taken a little bit more of a hands-on approach with with regard to the editing. And let me tell you two reasons I like it. One of them is because I actually do feel as though I did something yeah. during the course of the day. And I actually – I actually, so I'm as surprised as anyone. I enjoy that feeling. Yeah. And uh, and part of that is I also get to interact with our, our uh, writers on a pretty regular basis. Also um, – no, maybe that was the other reason. I get to interact <laughs> with our writers on a, on a daily basis. But, but it did uh, – uh, but it does uh, sometimes – maybe I have to postpone certain of my, certain of my activities and – um, one of them was, uh, yeah, I didn't get the podcast up tonight, but I will do it. I will do it today. And actually, um, even I think probably what I've posted before this edition, people should listen to this, is an interview that uh, David Lorla did, a double interview. One first with Pat Vendite, Pat Vendetti, 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 whatever, uh, ambidextrous pitcher. Yeah, which, I mean, I guess if he can throw with both arms, you should be able to pronounce his name however you want, right? Yeah, multiple yeah. pronunciations multiple, for multiple yeah. hands. Yeah, and then uh, Kurt Young, his pitching coach with Oakland. Yeah, a much easier name to say. Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, so he, uh, yeah, so he had those interviews, and so people can hear that too. That's all available. That's all available this week on Fangraphs Audio. Um, Neat. Yeah, but uh, now, what does the draft mean for you? You cover for the site typically. Uh, you you tend to cover. Uh, you do a lot of you do big picture work. You look at uh, certain developments today. For example, you wrote about Chris Archer's slider, which he's throwing very hard. Turns out. Yeah, yeah, it's um, pretty good. But you did. You actually wrote a piece uh, for uh, just a bit outside at Fox um, about hacking the draft, and um, you will know that I um, that I took some pleasure in this because it's mostly about fringe college players who became above-average second basemen. Yeah, I mean, this is like a conversation I think you and I have had on the podcast and off the podcast about um, you know what kinds of things that we think are generally under undervalued, and certainly I think you've kind of um, targeted some types of players where you think, you know, maybe scouts are not huge fans of their physical prowess, but you like them anyway, and have actually had a decently uh, okay success profile uh, going after some of these guys. And I think um, if we actually kind of dig through and say, what type of player have scouts generally missed on, especially in the draft, um, or as they're coming up through the ladder to where they get to the major leagues, you say, okay, well, this guy is supposed to be like a role player or a bench guy or, you know, and then they turn into something significantly better than that. Uh, you know, I think it's basically like two categories, right? It's like the pitchers with really good plus changeups and great command who don't throw really hard, which, uh, you know, we've had a, a number of those types of guys, Cliff Lee probably being the, the most obvious example. Um, but, you know, there's a, a good number of of command off-speed guys who turned into really good pitchers who didn't have frontline stuff. Uh, and then I think there's kind of the undersized, 
uh, guy who wasn't projected to hit for a lot of power, uh, but makes a lot of contact and probably runs the base as well and adds some defensive value and is just kind of profiles as that, you know, good at everything but not great at anything guy. And then if he learns how to hit for power, uh, he can really be something. And like Ben Zobrist is kind of the, the ultimate version of this kind of player. But I mean, I think over the few, last few years, we've seen a lot of these guys. I think Michael Brantley, uh, is a pretty good example of this of a guy who, you know, didn't hit for a lot of power. And was kind of, you know, seen as a, a below average or average major league player, and now he's an MVP candidate. I think AJ Pollock might be a good example of this right now in Arizona as a guy who came up as like a kind of speed and defense center fielder who wasn't going to hit a lot, didn't hit a lot in the minors, and now all of a sudden, you know, he's hitting, you know, like a 170, 180 ISO, uh, and making contact and stealing bases. And when you do that while playing elite goal defense in center field, yeah, you're an all-star. And so, uh, I think this kind of profile of guys who weren't supposed to hit for power or didn't look like they were going to hit for power and figured out how to not necessarily be Paul Goldschmidt or some 45 home run guy, but hit for enough power to make the rest of their their skills valuable. Uh, they really seem to be the kind of guys that you can um, really get a lot of return on your investment if you hit, hit on one. Do you think that there's some possibility? I mean, we're talking about the theories uh, as to why they might develop something approaching power. By the way, Michael, Pram- Michael Brantley right now is putting up Silly numbers in terms of. Have you seen his plate discipline numbers uh, yeah. recently? He he's uh, he's good at swinging at strikes and not and not swinging at balls. He really is. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't. I mean, he's got a 12% walk rate now and just a 7% strikeout rate. That yeah. is fantastic. That is great. Yeah. That is an 7% strikeout rate in this era is insane. It is insane. Yeah. And also to be hitting the ball with authority at the same time. You know, he's not a huge. He's not putting up huge power numbers, but he got a 160 ISO at this point, and that's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, he's not going to have, you know, his 2014 season over and over and over again, but he's certainly turned into more than what he looked like, you know, even two years ago. Do you think, do you think there's something to this that maybe we find these players who have good contact, who, have, who, uh, exhibit, um, some selectivity or maybe above average plus selectivity, if we were to put a grade on it, um, that maybe the power comes not as much from raw, uh, raw physical strength as it does simply from the fact that a they're able they're able to you okay there Dave Campbell? yeah sorry I'm uh, fighting a cough yeah they're able to distinguish um, hittable from non-hittable pitches and so they're more likely to swing at pitches that are you know that that um that the, that they are able to hit and then secondly. In getting more selective, they tend to find themselves perhaps in better counts where they're more likely to get fastballs and therefore are more likely to do damage to them. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the interesting things. Is I think the theory goes is that uh, or kind of the long-standing belief in baseball has been that if you are not physically intimidating, if you're small and undersized, pitchers are just not going to pitch around you, and plate selection or plate discipline won't be that valuable if you're getting 70% of pitches in the strike zone. And I think this holds up to an extent with like five, seven guys, right? Like if you see like D. Gordon and you know uh, Luis Castillo and these guys who literally can't. <coughs> oh, great! Sorry about that. Uh, guys who can't hit the ball out of the infield. They really don't get pitched around very much, and plate discipline doesn't do them. <coughs> Tell you what, why don't I go get a glass of water? That might help a little bit. Yeah, this is good. Sorry. I'll play some uh, hold music. Okay, we'll see if that helps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if you see guys like Luis Castillo and, and guys who just can't hit the ball out of the infield, they you know they get strikes thrown down the middle regularly. Plate discipline can help them, but it's not going to have uh, a huge impact on getting them into really 
fortunate counts. You're not going to get to a lot of 3-0 counts if, if guys are just throwing fastballs down the middle. But it turns out that major league pitchers might not be as good at throwing strikes uh, to guys with even a little bit of a modicum of power as we might think. Like there seems to be a little bit of a, a line where if you can, you know, have any extra base hit power at all, they're going to pitch around you enough to where taking pitches can get you into these 3-0, 3-1 counts. And we look at a guy like Matt Carpenter, who's not a big home run guy, or at least wasn't until, you know, April or May of this year. Uh, but he had a lot of doubles, him 40 or 50 doubles a year. Uh, pitchers really still would pitch around him, even though he wasn't going to hit the, hit a home run against them necessarily. And he can get himself into 3-0 or 3-1 counts and then load up and look for a fastball and swing for the moon. And, uh, you know, Matt Carpenter's definitely turned into more of a power hitter this year, uh, maybe because he's cheating on, on those counts and, and getting himself into situations where he can hit for more power than you expect for a guy with his frame. Now, yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the doubles because I don't know if you saw uh, at uh, Hardball Times on Friday, uh, Chris Mitchell... Um, did some work on um, using his Cato uh, his Cato system, um, which is essentially a, a means by which he evaluates the um, predict- predictive qualities of certain stats. Uh, he first did the minor leagues. Now we switch to college players. Um, how those stats might, how predictive they might be of major league success, and um, it's a weird relationship. Uh, there's probably some some caveats that one would have to apply to it, but one of the most predictive. Um, stats for, among college players is is rate of doubles per plate appearance. Yeah, uh, more predictive of future success than home runs, uh, and roughly on par. It's basically like strikeout strikeout rate or avoiding strikeouts, and then uh, and hitting doubles. I'm curious, is there anything that do you think this uh, this relates to what you're saying, or do you think this could also just be an aberration, statistical aberration? No? I mean, I think there's probably some selection bias going on here in that the kinds of guys who would hit a lot of home runs probably don't end up in college. I think, like, more likely big-time high school power prospects go to, go to the minors, and so we're probably not going to see you know the Bryce Harpers of the world uh, in in the college sample. You're going to end up more of the Dustin Pedroia types and the you know the guys who Jason Kipnis. You know these kinds of these kinds of players are more likely to go to college than the the big high school sluggers. Also, I do think there's uh, probably something to the fact of power developing later. Uh, I think with especially see this at positions like catcher and middle infield, where guys who are you know mostly uh, playing for their defense and are known for their defense um, can get longer development curves and improve their bats. I think like Yadier Molina and some of these guys who basically got to the major leagues really quickly, even though they couldn't hit, uh, were then given an opportunity to improve their offensive ability uh, because of their defensive skills. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're a negative defender and you're a questionable hitter, you're basically going to play yourself out of the game before you have a chance to improve. So I think, uh, with college players and with kind of guys who, uh, might get into regular roles, uh, in, in college programs doing things besides hitting for power, they get the development time that they might not get otherwise if they didn't have other skills. Uh, so you find these kind of, uh, contact doubles guys turning into power hitters eventually or turning into more power than they had in college uh, because they earned the development time with their other skills. You know, it's interesting, too. You, you, you mentioned that if, if a player was hitting home runs um, at, a, at a young age, probably. Now, there are still guys, obviously, in the college game who hit home runs, but many of them are sort of these, uh, you know, uh, giant, not particularly fit all the time, uh, first base DH types. And they're, they're, they're obviously not going to make it to the majors for other reasons because they don't have, uh, that sort of defensive skill that's going to allow them, 
um, to proceed through the, the minor leagues. And then, of course, guys who are able, who both have, you know, some sort of defensive value and are hitting home runs. Well, that that's very attractive to major league teams out of high school. So you're yeah, right. Those guys go in the very early parts of the first round. Right. Like we see like um, uh, Brendan Rogers, right. a, uh, a shortstop prospect in Louisiana, I think. He uh, He's what he's projected to go certainly within the top five, maybe the top three at this point. Yeah, I think he, on a lot of boards, he's the number one prospect. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's uh, that's uh, school. If you have those skills, good job. Good job, buddy. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's back to your original question. I do think, like, if you're looking for interesting picks today, and I think, you know, I'm, I noted in the Fox piece last week, like Joe Panic and uh, Colton Wong, I think two first-round picks who were, I remember, uh, a decent amount of criticism when those picks were made mm-hmm. uh, because of their perceived limited upside. I would say recent history suggests to me that if you take a guy with a good track record of hitting in college, and the uh, an instant reaction is, this guy doesn't have upside, you should maybe ignore that comment, because I'm not sure how good we are at actually assessing a player's upside. Yeah, and it should be, uh, those, uh, one should also have that thought, perhaps even more so as we get to, to day two, for example, yeah. where we're looking at the what, the fourth to the tenth round on day two. Or really even after, the, yeah, I mean, right. the, from, uh, probably from the middle back to the sec- of the first round on, I, I'm not so sure that besides maybe a guy who throws 99 and needs to figure out his command, like then you can say, okay, there's some upside here. There, there isn't with a guy who throws 86. Uh, but especially on the hitting side where it's so hard to scout the hitting tool and know that in advance. I'm not so sure we're really that good at separating out the non-elite players. Like, I, you know, I'm happy to believe that Dansby Swanson and, and Brendan Rodgers and Alex Bregman and some of these guys have significantly more upside than the guys who will go in the second half of the first round. And I think history shows that the top picks have a, you know, significantly better return. But once you get to, like, pick 20 or so and mm-hmm. down to pick 300, they're kind of all the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, fun to look for. I believe um – well, uh, perhaps people have already in- enjoyed it, but I believe Kyle McDaniel will be doing a uh, uh, some sort of chat during the draft, starting at 5, something like that. Yeah, he's doing a, a chat and a live blog, so uh, come hang out with Kylie and, and hear him. Wait, are those different talk- things, a chat and a live blog? Well, like the chat before the draft, he'll be taking questions, presumably, kind oh. of like a, you know, a Q&A, and then during the, the draft, he'll probably be ignoring all of you and just talking by himself. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, he doesn't need he doesn't need you. Yeah, so well, I right. Really I mean, Ky- Kylie is a, a perfectly capable of talking uh, on his own for oh, long periods of time. Yeah, terrible. Uh, now, you uh, just to, uh, to to be a little bit more fine about it, um, you noticed you noted uh, c- certain of these types of players um, in terms of th- these players who might be underrated um, or who, who's who might be under <laughs> undervalued because they're they, they don't necessarily possess the physical tools. At what point, you, you said maybe 20 and plus, but at what point do you think this starts becoming a factor for teams where they're saying, where they're weighing between guys who maybe still have some sort of physical tools, but uh, their baseball skills are a little bit less certain or vice versa? I mean, I think, you know, it's probably uh, for most teams, not all, but for most teams, it's it, having an impact at the very top of the draft now. I think like Kyle Schwarber last year is a pretty good example of this, right? The Cubs took him fourth overall. And it was seen as a pretty big stretch. Uh, and Schwarber was definitely 
kind of the classic money ball player of like a, you know, bat first, questionable defense catcher who probably should be a first baseman, maybe an outfielder if you think you can, you know, stretch him, stretch him into play out there. But, you know, basically a guy you're drafting because he hit well in college and you believe in the bat. And, uh, I think Schwarber's the kind of guy that probably, uh, a non-analytical team wouldn't have taken fourth overall, but I think with the Cubs uh, seem to be justified given the way he's hitting right now, and I wouldn't be surprised if Schwarber, you know, was their starting left fielder in the second half of the year as they make a run for the playoffs. Okay. Uh, uh, no, actually, this is a wow. This is dovetailing very nicely. Um, a a recently uh, this I guess it was probably this weekend or maybe it was Friday, but it was maybe it was this weekend, but I think it was Friday actually. Um, Pat Vendetta. Pat, I'm going to say Vendetta. Vendetta. Okay. Vendetta. But that's not how you say his name. I I just looked up a pronunciation guide. Let's see. Vendetta. Venditti. Uh, you think so? Venditti? Vendetti? I, I heard it pronounced Venditti multiple times this spring. Say it one more time. Venditti. All right, we're going to say Venditti. I'll that, say that's, Venditti. That's how I've heard it. I'm going to say Venditti. Yeah. I'm going to say Venditti. Uh, Pat Venditti was, was selected. Had, uh, Pat Venditti, it should be said, had... Um, fantastic numbers as a college pitcher, not merely as a college senior. Uh, he was quite good. Um, he, he hardly pitched at all his freshman year, but sophomore through senior year at Creighton, um, he was striking out batters. He didn't. Uh, he did not receive. He received one or two starts the whole time, but he was an excellent relief pitcher for obvious reasons, uh, because he can. He always has the platoon advantage. Yeah. Um, he put up. Uh, he put up fantastic numbers throughout his minor league career. Uh, especially in terms of uh, strikeouts and walks. And yet uh, he received uh, his uh, a promotion to the major leagues only uh, only this past week. Is It's hard not to see Venditti as anything but singular because of his, his one skill. Do you think that if – Two skills. Yeah, I guess <laughs> two skills and one. Two, two, two skills and one. Do you think that, though, if he had had a – I don't know. The Yankees have drafted him both times. Why didn't they? Why did they move him so slowly through through their system? Do you, do you <laughs> think? Well, so I think it's not just that he's a little bit unorthodox in that he throws with both hands. He doesn't throw hard, right? So this is a guy who sits in the mid 80s, low low 90s occasionally. Um, yeah, not but, hard. But especially now that he's sidearm with the right, he's definitely like mid 80s. Yeah, and yeah. so like uh, you look at him and you're like, okay. This is not plus stuff from either side. Uh, there's not an obvious out pitch here. It's basically just all deception. And I think, uh, you know, as we talked about in the last segment, uh, scouts have generally preferred stuff over deception. And, you know, there's a long list of guys who pitched fairly well in the minor leagues with moderate stuff and have not really gotten chances in the big leagues for a long time. Yusmero Petit was for years kind of the scouting example of why uh, you don't want to just evaluate a pitcher based on his stat line uh, when the stuff's not there. And then Yasmero Petit finally got a chance in the big leagues and showed he's actually okay. And maybe he should have gotten a chance a lot earlier. Um, and as I think Venditti kind of falls into this role of like people will say, okay, whatever, he's getting minor league hitters out, but he's getting it out with minor league, he's getting them out with minor league stuff and this won't work in the big leagues. Uh, you know, even the A's is one of the most progressive, uh, you know, risk taking organizations in baseball. Uh, left him in the bullpen, uh, left him in the minors while their bullpen struggled for two months and, uh, you know, there have been calls for a long time for them to bring Mendidi up and they tried out like six or seven other minor league relievers first. Uh, it's not like they were, uh, pushing the envelope here and saying, you know, we're, we really think Venditti can be awesome. Uh, this is a little bit of a desperation ploy and it's, you know, probably one of the few teams in baseball who would take a shot on a guy who, uh, just doesn't seem to have major league quality stuff. 
whether he, you know, the deception and being able to get the platoon advantage in every single at bat, mostly the same thing as switch hitter, I guess, uh, will be enough to make up for the lack of stuff. It remains to be seen. Uh, I think it seems like major league teams still don't think it's going to be true. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess, uh, I guess what uh, we have to wait to see if it's going to be true. Yeah, I mean, he deserves a chance. I mean, I think that, you know, it would be a shame if Venditti just had to spend his entire career dominating AAA hitters and never got a look in the big leagues. Uh, But I think the fact that, like, all 30 teams have basically said, we don't think this is going to work, means that it's probably not going to work. It doesn't mean they're right. I mean, this is a little bit of an appeal to authority, but uh, I think when every team in baseball, including all these who are working very hard to find minimal edges, uh, look at Venditti and say, we, we realize he throws with both hands and we see a platoon advantage here and we still don't want him, eh, it says something. Right, right. Um, okay, Dave Cameron, there was a there was a notable transaction. Well, I guess there's been a couple notable transactions. Uh, the Houston, Houston's calling up, a bunch of their rookies, or a bunch of their prospects, which is notable. Carlos Correa will get a chance to make his major league debut today. Yep. Uh, that's insane. There was a real one, though. Uh, uh, a couple people wrote about it, you included, and also uh, Jeff Sullivan. Yep. Uh, involving Mark Trumbo. And the Mariners have finally acquired Mark Trumbo after years and years and years. He was Jack Zorensik's white whale. Like, if you remember, uh, you know, there was always the talk in Moneyball about Billy Bean really wanted to get Ruby Dorazo and, like, chased him to the ends of the earth. Right, right. Uh, this is Mark Trumbo. He's Jack Zorensik's Ruby Dorazo. And he is such because... Uh, he is everything that Jack likes in a player. He has right-handed power, and he doesn't do anything else well. Does it? Is it actually true that he... <laughs> He uh, likes players who don't do anything else well. No, but he puts a really large premium on power relative to other skills, more so than most GMs. Right. So he so his he values this sort of player, and that because he was also, uh, I believe, the Mariners more than once uh, were lustily uh, attempting to sign Kendris Morales. Oh uh, yeah, they they have, they've been in love with Kendris Morales for years, uh, acquiring him uh, twice actually. Yeah. Uh, once after he said he didn't want to play there. Yeah, against his will, in fact. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the twins signed him and then they just traded for him. Uh, no, right. Like Jack certainly has some guys that he uh, believes in and uh, really likes a lot. And I think you know this player type is kind of his player type. Even when he was in Milwaukee as a scouting director, he drafted Prince Fielder and Ricky Weeks and Corey Hart. Like none of them were good defenders, uh, and all of them were kind of uh, you know big power hitting guys who um, you know hit home runs and tried to make up for their deficiencies elsewhere. And you know with Fielder, it, it turned out pretty well for those guys. They all had productive careers in Milwaukee. Uh, but this has definitely always been Jack's kind of player is uh, you know the guy who hits the ball really far. Right. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Ricky Weeks. I, I was reminded, um, I don't know why I was reminded, but I was reminded that he attended Southern University. Um, and I think that they are in the Southwestern Athletic Conference. That's not, it's neither a team nor a conference that uh, necessarily produces uh, what the French might call buku, the major leaguers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that was the thing with Weeks coming out of college, right, is his numbers were insane, but when you adjusted for quality of competition, they weren't as impressive because he was playing against, like, the equivalent of high school players. Right, but he he, he did have good uh, good seasons. He didn't, uh, all right, good right. Wiki Weeks turned into a good major league player for a while. Right, and uh, but although, do you know who who else went to Southern, Is uh, it turns out, is uh, this is probably why I thought about it recently, is Jose de Leon. Oh, really? Who is currently the – I don't I don't know how quickly – this happens, but 
he goes from not appearing at all on on uh, Kylie's top 200 prospect list, and of course, uh, Kylie at least uh, seems to know what he's d- doing. Um, uh, and then, I mean, now he or he recently appeared on Keith Law's like top 25 prospect update. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, wait, he was a 24th round pick two years ago, and now he's generally considered a you know the Dodgers' best pitching prospect, not named Julio Urias. Right, like, that's a pretty rapid rise. Yeah. I mean, if you, and if you're because being the best prospect not named Julio Urias could also mean that you're just the, the second, second best, best pitching prospect. Second best prospect. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So that's that's a, I guess that's another thing with regard to the draft. Um, that's another thing that intrigues me is the relative the relative um, ability of certain conferences to produce major leaguers versus other other conferences, right? So, like, you know that a bunch of major leaguers are to come out of the SEC. In fact, I don't know if you noted this, but the, the um, what NCAA Baseball just named the four finalists for the Golden Spikes Award, uh, which is technically technically given to the best amateur player in the country, but in practice is given to the best college player. Right. Uh, and all four players named were, were from the SEC. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Pac-12 produces major leaguers. The ACC produces a bunch of major leaguers. The Missouri Valley Conference, uh, over the last however many years, has produced Ben Zilbrist. <laughs> and, you know, and that's it. The Ohio yeah. Valley Conference, I think, has produced, like, Daniel Murphy, and that's it. Mm, that's uh, not as good as Ben Zilbrist. Not as good as Ben Zilbrist, but, you know, he's turned into a major leaguer. Yeah. And, uh, but it is, you know, you don't expect a player to come out of the SWAC. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, but that doesn't, but uh, I guess you probably should not entirely ignore certain conferences, right? Because, um, because the, there might be a guy who's just who's just developed over those two or three years he spent he's been playing. Yeah, I mean, I think you know guys like Matt Carpenter who I think went to TCU or something, right? So like an actual baseball school, uh, but he wasn't considered one of their best players and and wasn't a high profile prospect. I think he, guys like that are what teams are looking for generally when they go hunting uh, in these smaller conferences is guys who you know maybe have two or three major league skills mm-hmm. and then can be developed from there into overall. Uh, quality big leaguers. And I think, you know, one thing that's going to be an interesting thing to look at going forward is, uh, are the teams like the Cardinals, and this has kind of been one of the questions that it's very difficult to answer, but are teams like the Cardinals who have done such a good job of developing talent internally, are they really good at scouting or are they really good at developing? Like, it's basically impossible to tell whether, uh, the Cardinals found Matt Carpenter or they turned Matt Carpenter into Matt Carpenter. And, uh, I think this is going to be one of the things that, you know, eventually baseball will have to work on unwinding is can we tell the difference between a guy who had the potential to become this uh, no matter where he went and was just going to work himself into being a better player than anyone expected, or was this a situation where the Cardinals themselves or, you know, other organizations who are good at this as well molded a guy into something he wouldn't have been had he not landed there? All right. Uh, okay, let, let's just finish up our conversation about Trumbo. Uh, I, taking a look, uh, we find that he has been playing mostly DH, I guess, for the Mariners. Is that right? Yeah. I think they, when they acquired him, they said he was going to split time between first base and DH and play the outfield occasionally. Uh, that was basically the same role besides the first base stuff that they acquired Nelson Cruz for. So Nelson Cruz, who was uh, supposed to be the DH originally, is now the full-time right fielder, essentially. Uh, and Trumbo is replaced him at DH. As bad as Trumbo is in the outfield, I think he might actually be better than Nelson Cruz. Uh, so interestingly, you could actually maybe argue that uh, the Mariners' best defensive out- uh, outfield includes uh, Mark Trumbo in it. 
Mm. Which is sa- which is sad. It's not great for the team. Yeah. Um, so what what would be what do you think would be their ideal outfield configuration plus DH? Uh, well, I think you probably want Nelson Cruz as your DH, and now that you have Mark Trumbo, if you're uh, going to stick with Logan Morrison as your first baseman, which I would argue maybe you shouldn't. Uh, I personally, I think I'd put Trumbo at first and Cruz at DH and, and try and find three other outfielders. Uh, but <laughs> they're, they're not going to do that. So they're probably going to stick uh, Cruz in right field, uh, Trumbo at DH, and then go with uh, Seth Smith in left field and mm-hmm. Austin Jackson in center. Uh, you know, Smith's okay. He's not anything special, but he's an okay outfielder. So having him play one of the spots is fine. Uh, but I think the reality is the Mariners don't have enough good outfielders. Right. Uh, and yet they, and it, even after acquiring Mark Trumbo, they still don't have enough good outfielders. Right. Because it didn't really affect the, their level of good outfielders, is what you're trying to say. No. And yeah. Dustin, Dustin Ackley's had, had some trouble. Dustin Ackley is maybe the most obvious needs a change of scenery guy in all of baseball. Like, I still think that, you know, uh, Dustin Ackley could have a major league career, probably as a second baseman. Uh, he just needs to get out of Seattle and he needs to start over. Do you think that that's just a product of, because because his strength, right, as an amateur and as a minor leaguer, was really controlling the strike zone, if not necessarily demonstrating tons of power. Yeah, no, I mean he came up as a kind of player that he doesn't resemble at all right now. He was a guy who drew a lot of walks and hit a lot of doubles and sprayed the ball all over the field. Uh, at least that's what he was in college. And then the Mariners tried to help him uh, be more aggressive and hit for power. And in in doing so, they uh, eliminated his ability to hit the ball to left field, and they eliminated his ability to draw walks. And when you take a guy who is basically is a, a walk-drawing doubles machine and you take those two things away, you're left with not much. Hmm, yeah. Actually, it, it, uh, it does uh, seem as though um, his... Um, Percentage the percentage of uh, balls he's swung out outside of the zone is also um, more or less increased over the course of his career. It's probably yeah, not. I mean he came up as a fairly patient hitter, and then he took a lot of called strikes on pitches away, and the Mariners yelled at him and said, "We're annoyed at this. Stop it!" And so then he started swinging, and that didn't fix the problem. He yeah. basically needs to go to a new organization, get a new hitting coach, get new philosophies on life, probably move back to second base, uh, where he's actually a capable defender, and, the, and his bat will play better, and he could have a decent second half of his career. It just won't be in Seattle. He should go to the Cardinals. He should probably go to the Cardinals or a team like the Cubs or one of these teams that will just basically say, forget everything that's happened to you your first five or six years. We actually like your skill set and we're not going to try and change you. Okay. Does the, what does the, uh, finally, I, I guess, what does the acquisition of, uh, Trumbo do for that team? Is it relatively, uh, not, not a whole lot. Uh, he gives them more right-handed power, um, which, you know, they kind of already had a little bit of anyway. Uh, and he gives them, um, you know, maybe a one and a half win player, uh, uh, you know, for two thirds of the season, so maybe he adds a win or half a win or something like that to their their, their standings. It's not a dramatic upgrade, uh, but he's a minor improvement. What does uh, do, do you think Jack Zernetic has any has any feelings <coughs> about Evan Gaddis? Given uh, the desires you've suggested here, they tried to trade for Evan Gaddis last winter. They did, huh? Yeah, yeah. They wanted to stick him in the outfield too. Evan Gaddis is that Evan Gaddis? What does he compare him to? Mark Trumbo, same guy. Kind of. I think Gaddis makes less contact. Trumbo is not a big contact guy, but he's not a crazy swing and miss guy like like uh, Gaddis is. So Gaddis is like Trumbo with less control of the strike zone. Is it possible he has more raw power? Is that possible? Yeah, probably. But I mean, they're both like uh, you know near the top of the scale in terms of raw power. Gaddis might have a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, similar guys. But one of them is uh, more expensive at this point, I think. 
Yeah, I think one of the interesting things, Trumbo makes, uh, seven million this year, and he'll go to arbitration next winter and probably get close to ten million or so, and mm-hmm. he has a pretty good argument that Mark Trumbo is not worth ten million dollars. Yeah. But they traded for him, so they probably will want him around. Well, they didn't give up much. I think that's the nice thing. I was like, I don't like Mark Trumbo as a player that much. He's not very good, but the, what they gave the Diamondbacks is, uh, uh, equivalent to admitting that Mark Trumbo isn't very good. Right. Okay. Alright. Well, hey, uh, Cameron, uh, you've fulfilled your obligation and it sounded great. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I look forward to next week not sounding like a horse because I ha- I'm a horse. Your horse. Your horse. Of course. <laughs> uh-huh. Alright, uh, thank you. Thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>